Greetings, Embers, and welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. From now on, the membership family will be seen scrolling in the beginning. I will then give my shout-out at the end of the videos, so we can jump into our stories a whole lot faster. If you are new here and enjoy what you are hearing or have been here and not done so already, please don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. Not only does it help the channel out, but it also reminds you of every time I upload a video. If you would like to become a member or would like to buy me a coffee as a special thank you, that information can be found down below. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes, for once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and a happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in to get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled True Christmas Scary Stories. Right after this intro and ad will play, I'll read the first story and ad will play, and after that there will be no more ads within this video. Most people here are probably aware of the story of Ed Gein. For those that aren't, he was a small town handyman who confessed to murdering two women in addition to stealing numerous bodies from their graves. One of the women he murdered was the owner of the local hardware store, where he shot and killed her. That building still stands today. My story happened 20 plus years ago. I live in that small town and it was just before Thanksgiving. I had already started decorating my place for Christmas and I needed to replace some of the light, so I just made a quick trip to the hardware store for a couple of boxes. I knew the building was rumored to be haunted by the murdered woman, but I never put much stock into it. I was in the back area where they kept the Christmas decorations and was about to grab the light when I heard someone nearby saying something about antifreeze. I turned my head and I saw a woman walking by with a massive gunshot wound in her head. She then suddenly disappeared I just stood there in shock for a good minute. When I finally made my way to the front of the store to pay for the lights, the guy behind the counter took one look at my face and simply said, You saw her too, didn't you? From that moment on, I shop elsewhere or order all of my Christmas stuff online. It was Christmas Eve, and I was a freshman in high school. My family had been split up for some time, so normally we trade off Christmas Day and Christmas Eve every year. And this year, I'd come home early from my grandparents' Christmas party, while everyone else was at my aunt and uncle's celebrating at another party. When I was dropped off, my cousins offered to stay with me for a few hours, yet I declined. I thought I could catch some new DVDs and get some alone time in the house, which is a rarity. I had noticed an unfamiliar car parked in the street, but didn't think anything of it considering it was Christmas Eve. Probably a neighbor's relative or something. After I got inside, I locked the door, grabbed snacks, and started to settle down. I hadn't been more than 15 minutes when there was a knock at the door. I unlocked the door and opened it, only a crack to see a man standing there. Dark hair, glasses, slightly overweight, and dressed usually. He didn't look like much of a threat, but my stomach dropped. He asked, I was wondering about the car outside. Is it for sale? I told him I didn't think so. Is there someone here I can talk to about it? I said, and quite stupidly, I might add, no, you can come back another time, and shut the door, and turn the lock as fast as I could. He reached for the handle immediately and started pounding on the door. I heard a string of profanities, and the pounding stopped. Terrified, I was crawling on the floor to the phone, hoping he wouldn't be able to see me through our windows. Then, I heard the noises. Our house had an open garage door, and it led through to the laundry room, where the door lock was broken and no one had bothered to fix it. Just then I heard a man yell, and I saw the man through the window run to his car and drive off, 
My uncle had got him just in time and scared the man off. Who knows what would have happened if he hadn't made it home in time. Sadly, we didn't get the plate number and nothing ever came of it, but I'll never be home alone again on a holiday. So, this happened to me when I was around 10 years old. This little story still haunts me to this day, and I can still see it all happening in my head. First, I have to clear some things up. In my country, we celebrate Christmas on the 24th. In the evening, we would get some of our presents. This happened on the same day in the morning. We live in a small house. It's not old or anything. My parents actually built it back in 1998. It's a two-story house, and that Christmas we have the tree in the upper room, my brother's room, this year. My father locked the room for obvious reasons, so no one could come into the room before Christmas Eve. No one but my parents. That morning I was so excited for the presents, so I woke up early, and the room was obviously still locked. Both my parents and my brother were asleep. I rushed over to wake them, but I didn't because I wanted to check if there are any presents under the tree already. To be clear, I saw them both still asleep this morning. Instead, I sneaked back to the room where the Christmas tree was and looked through the keyhole. I expected to see a lot of presents lying under the tree, but instead I saw a big shadow, like something big was lying in front of the tree. I stared at it for a little while when it suddenly begins to move. It was definitely not human. It looked like it jumped in the room and even got on the ceiling. You can actually see the tree, the window, and a little bit of the room. Then I saw it jump out of my vision, still in the room. A few seconds later, I was met with an eye staring back at me through the keyhole. I was scared and jumped back but did not look again. My parents didn't believe me when I told them what had happened. I still don't know what it could be, and I think I never will. I'm not sure about this part, but I thought I saw some wood in an queer shape around the eye. I don't remember any color of the eye itself, but that's more because I'm a little colorblind. For reference, the thing I saw looked like what the channel Ghost of Caramel Maine captured. Nuke's Top 5 should have a good clip of it. After that Christmas, I never looked through that keyhole again. This is actually my mom's story and will be told from her personal account, meaning first view through my mother's eyes. Though this isn't exactly a let's not meet story, since the villain of the story is deceased, and neither technically met any of the characters before he became so. But, even so, he is a man that I'm sure everyone involved wished they had never had the displeasure to cross paths with. It was early December in 2005. My brother, Alex, and his wife's fourth child had just started first grade. So, with her having full days of school, they had more time to pick up some extra hours and try to get ready for Christmas. All he could find at the time is work, with companies where he would drive a work truck to different counties in our state, making deliveries between businesses that weren't worth getting into a big semi-truck for. After the big snowstorm we had in 99 that trapped us all at home for weeks, None of us liked the idea of him being out on the road, but you know your uncle. He couldn't stand the idea of having nothing under the Christmas tree. I didn't even want to go with him. When he asked me, I had the worst feeling about it, but the weather channels all said the storm wouldn't last and I was the only one out of school that had a cell phone, so I couldn't just let him go there alone. If something happened and he froze to death because he couldn't call for help, I don't know if I would be able to live with myself. So I dropped you off at your aunt's house and told your father I'd be back in a few days. That was it. That was the start of it all. 
a route he'd done a hundred times up to that point, but the Weather Channel was wrong. By the time we were nearing the Vermont border and all those mountains came up, every single one of them didn't have a speck of color on them. Everything around us was white. There were points when all we could do was follow the tire tracks on the road from vehicles in front of us and hope they didn't go off the road for us to follow. We were starting to lose the light by the time we were closing in on Burlington, Vermont, and we figured that would be as good of a place as to spend the night. I hate cities, but driving those roads in the dark was not an option. We only had to travel through the back way to Montpelier, and then it was smooth sailing on the interstate right into Burlington. In the morning, we would assess our route and cut through New Hampshire, and from there, toward the city. I remember we filled up at a gas station, and it was so cold that when we brought our coffees to the van, it didn't even burn our mouths to drink it. Nothing but ice out there but we were sure we could make it to the interstate and then the roads would be clear. So, we kept going. Even though we felt off about it. We were talking about what we were going to get the kids for Christmas and where we'd be getting together to have Christmas dinner that year. When we hit the mountain, I said to him, We should turn around and go back. This is not safe. For a minute, I thought he'd listen, and then he shifted the gear on the van and said, Go back to what? He was right. We hadn't seen anything since we got our coffees, and they were stone cold by then. It was actually okay for a while. We were following another car stuck behind a plow, so safest place to be at that time. Or so we thought. The next bit is always a bit hazy for me. We know the snowplow jerked toward the edge of the mountainside, and we were so afraid of him going through the bars and off the side of the mountain. And I didn't even have time to look out the windshield to see what he was yelling about before the car in front of us hit us. When everything stopped moving, my coffee was everywhere. All over me, the windshield, my phone, everything. My chest was on fire, and my legs felt like, well like they'd been hit by a car. I checked my phone first thing, but no good. It was gone. So much for calling for help. The next thing I checked was my brother. His mouth was bleeding and his eyes were closed, but when I said his name and shook him, he groaned, so at least I knew he was alive. All I could see in front of us was ice and rock, so I had no idea what the other driver's states were. But I had to get to a phone and get help. So I told him to stay put, and I got out of the car. Of course, he didn't listen to me, because he never does. So, before I could even register what I was looking at, he was behind me calling my name and telling me not to leave him. In front of us was this large work truck, and flat as a pancake, right in the front of it, was the car in front of us. I didn't move. They had to have been dead. No one could have survived that. But Alex ran the best he could, holding his chest and stumbling around the car and pried open the passenger side door to the truck. I finally snapped out of my daze when he told me to stay away from the truck and my heart sank. Was everyone dead? Were we the only ones who survived? That's the day I realized that hell was not a place. Being all alone on that mountain, surrounded by metal, rocks, freezing cold wind, ice, and dead bodies, with no way to get help, and miles away from anyone or anything, that was the worst feeling I've ever experienced. There was another vehicle that wasn't there, though someone who might be alive. The snowplow was gone, there was a big dent in the guardrail, and we couldn't see him, so... He left us to go get help. What else could we think? No one that's not pure evil could see what we saw and not stay to help unless they knew they needed to get to the police. I was about to mention the snowplow when he finally got the door open, only to find himself up to his ankles in trash. He didn't hesitate, though. He was going for the radio and climbed into the truck where I couldn't see him. 
I panicked. Even him just out of sight, I couldn't stand being alone up there, so I ran to the truck, despite knowing what I'd find. But I had to stop before I got to the door anyway. It smelled like a brewery mixed with pennies. I knew that smell. Enough alcoholics were in my family to know that smell. Alex cursed and tumbled back out of the truck, and I went to him to help him up, trying to ignore the fresh blood on his clothes. And the ever stronger smell of alcohol and blood filling my nose coming from the now open door. Radio's dead. Thing won't even start. He snarled, gripping his chest in pain. I started to tell him my thoughts on the plow when we heard a horrible scream that made us both flinch away from the panic behind it. I practically dropped Alex to the ground, racing back around to the front of the truck to the car. And inside was a young girl. She was beautiful. Brown hair with blonde highlights, a Lilo and Stitch t-shirt, and the most beautiful blue eyes I'd ever seen that were filled with tears and terror. She was confused and screaming in between words, reaching out to me, and I grabbed her hand. Alex, in a rush to go get me and get me away from the scene, crashed into me, and she cried out when my hands were pulled from hers. But I was right back to the window in seconds with her, pushing him off of me. We'll get you out, honey, I promise. I turned to Alex as he tugged on me again. He had to have some sort of idea, right? He could get her. One door was already pried open. We could do another. But his eyes were gigantic when he looked at me and he wouldn't say a word. Coming from a guy who has never shut up since the day he was born, I met his eyes. Then followed where he led my gaze to, and a fresh set of tears sprung on me all over again. Right underneath the feet of Stitch on her shirt and a bit of her stomach that was showing with how she was sitting, there was solid metal. The rest of her couldn't even be seen. She didn't seem to understand what happened to make me react like that and started panicking when she followed our eyes, realizing what we did. She began panicking all over again, begging us to tell her where her legs were. So I shushed her, holding her hands tight and promising her that she'll be okay, that help was coming, and that we'd get her out. I don't know how long I stood there, Alex eventually went back to the truck and in the mostly undamaged back of hours to see if he could find anything to help fight the cold while we waited. But there wasn't much. He even searched the area and the trash that fell out of the drunk man's truck, but no luck there either. I gave her my jacket after we put on every piece of clothing that we brought with us for the trip. She was getting cold though and her voice was getting weaker more quiet. It was completely dark by then. All we could see was what the snow led us and our flashlights that would run out of battery eventually. Alex tried to convince me to get back into our vehicle to get out of the wind, but I just couldn't leave her. When I looked into her eyes, all I could see was you when you got that age one day. She wasn't even 20 yet trying to get home for Christmas. She told me about her family, about college, and her life up to that point, and her asshole of a boyfriend that was supposed to come with her but canceled at the last minute to spend the holidays with his friends instead. She decided before the end that it was a good thing, though. She said he was a good man, and he didn't deserve to die like this, too. She was much more calm by this point and not even acknowledging the fact that she was practically cut in half. I think deep down she knew she wasn't going home and needed someone to listen to her as she tried to make sense of how this could be her life now that was coming to an end. She kept mentioning how cold it was getting, but as soon as Alex noticed me removing my layers of clothing to give to her, he scolded me, demanding that I keep us bundled up as possible. He told me that she was already dead and we're the ones who needed the warmth, not her. I knew he was right, but I cursed him anyway, shoving him away from her. 
Even if she too knew he was right, he didn't need to say that in front of her. She had even grown quiet after some time, us giving her other assurances that everything will be okay instead of the conversation before. By that time, I was struggling against the cold, even with Alex hugging me, trying to keep the wind on his back and off of me. When we heard sirens in the distance, my brother and I looked at each other without even saying anything or showing any emotion. He staggered and limped as fast as he could toward them, holding the flashlight over his head and waving it. He couldn't yell without devolving into coughs and spitting up more blood, but gritting his teeth against the pain, hand on his chest, he waved the light all over the road towards the sirens. Eventually seeing the lights of police, firefighters, and ambulances, I told her that they were coming, that they would help her, and this was all over. But she didn't react. She gave me a sad smile, and it broke my heart into a million pieces. I knew that she knew by then that she wasn't going to make it, but seeing the acceptance mixed in with the fear on her face and hearing how thankful she was that I was with her and how lucky my daughter was to have her in my life was more than I could take. I let go of her hand and did what my brother couldn't. I stood and jumped, waving the flashlight over my head, screaming that we need the ambulance over here, that she needs help. They listened and rushed over as fast as they could, but Alex was right. There was no helping her. She got to call her mother on one of the EMT's phone and tell her she loved her, along with some other messages to her other family. Then, they moved her to try to get her out, and that was it. They took me away into the ambulance after they ensured her pulse had stopped. She was dead. The drunk guy was dead. My brother could be dying for all I knew, and none of it felt real. My brother and I were allowed to ride in the ambulance together. It's against protocol, but given what we had just been through and how devastated I was, they allowed it. I think Alex would have attacked them if they tried to separate him from me at that point, regardless. He wasn't letting me out of his sight until we were in a building with heat and off that fucking mountain. Once we got into the hospital, they took him away, and I was alone. So I called your father, told him where I was and the gist of what had happened. Then I called your aunt, told her even less of what had happened, and that I would call her the second I heard anything about Alex. And she had to wake you up since it was almost three in the morning. But I had to hear your voice. Now it's 2021, and when it's cold outside, my skin burns as if it's being stabbed by heated needles. Alex had so much blood in his lung by the time that they came that he still has problems with breathing. We both had broken ribs that healed and the surgery I had to get later on my legs went fine. It's 2021 and we're alive. We got to come home and have Christmas and all the Christmases since then. And I saw you grow up to be the age of that poor girl and then surpass her. I never went to her funeral or met with her family. I've always regretted that. These days, I don't even remember her voice, her family's name. I don't even remember what school she went to or where exactly her boyfriend went for Christmas instead of going home with her. I don't remember how her hands felt or the smell of her shampoo in her hair. Hell, most of the time, it doesn't even feel like she was a real person, like it was a horrible dream or something that happened to someone else. But that smile she gave me at the end, how she knew it was over, but was too scared to actually say it. How one of her last acts was to reassure me that she knew that she was going to die and that it was going to be okay. Just like we said that... I will never forget it. This is a mildly scary story, comparatively, but it probably is the closest I've been to being robbed or what I assume was going to end much, much worse. 
This happened about four years ago on Christmas Day. I had spent the morning at my mother's house in and then got in the car with my on and off again boyfriend at the time. He was going to drop me off at the train station so that I could catch my train at 10 p.m. I had done this a few times because I had actually gone to school across the Canadian border and traveled alone as a 19-year-old girl quite often. I'm pretty much an extremely outspoken, so not the person you typically want to pick on for nefarious reasons. Although my ex was not very tough in stature and was often seen as an easy target. So, here we are sitting in the car outside of the train station smoking my last little bit of pot. I was a fairly reckless teen, but also aware of the bad that could happen. So a man walks right up to the car and taps on the window. This man is rough looking, to say the least and I assume was approaching his fifties. My ex carelessly rode down the window all the way and asks what he needs. The man explains that his car had run out of gas and he was in need of some help because he had no phone or no money. He said his wife was in the car and she was pregnant and they just needed to get home. Now, living in the big city, you get used to people asking you for money. That's not what concerned me. When I really started to panic is after I had already given him all the cash I had on me. I think around 20 bucks. That's when he got really weird. He really wanted us to step out of the car and come help him. My first thought was, how the fuck do you think we are going to be able to help you? So I sternly spoke up and said, we gave you the money, now please leave us alone. He then acted offended that I could even be scared in the situation. He just kept insisting that we go over to his car where his wife was waiting. It was clear in my thoughts that under no circumstances would I walk over to that car. Now I was starting to get angry. As he started to spew off some bullshit about him being a war veteran and for us to not worry about it. He started saying some random-ass numbers as if they wouldn't matter to us at all. He then proceeded to grab my ex's wrist and explain to him how he could break it in one move. At this point, I said something to the effect of leave us alone right fucking now. He looked at me and stepped away. I then told my ex to move the car to the other side of the station as so we could call the police. Nothing else really happened. I got on the train just fine, and the cops never got back to us. But the more I think about that night, the more I get really freaked out about what he really intended to achieve that evening. So, to the creepily aggressive man who ruined my Christmas, I'm never going to get into your goddamn car. The story happened in early December of 2018. It was Christmas break, so I was back home from college and staying with my parents. I live on the second floor of my house, just above the sliding back door. It's a fairly heavy door, so anytime anyone opens it or closes it, I can hear it. Our house was built in the 1940s, so it creaks a lot and sound travels through the walls pretty easily. We live in a relatively safe part of town, too. The strangest people we've ever gotten are magazine solicitors, and even they stopped coming around a few years ago. We've never come anywhere close to a break-in. Admittedly, I'd gotten into the bad habit of smoking weed out of my bedroom window after my parents went to bed. Most nights by midnight. I had my window open anywhere from 30 minutes to 2 hours. It depended on how tired I was, really, how cold it was outside, etc. I would leave it open to air out the room while I watched Netflix or listened to music. I always listened to whatever I was watching through one headphone. This way, I had an open ear to hear if anyone got up or started walking in the hallway. That night, I had gone through my routine and was laying in bed watching YouTube when the alarm to our house went off. It was the blaring to all hell alarm, so the entire house was up and ready to go. 
My primary concern, which I realize is ridiculous, was not that someone might be breaking into our house. It was that my parents might smell the residual weed smell in my room. My dad poked his head through the door to make sure he knew where I was before he scoped the downstairs and turned off the alarm. When he knew I was okay, he asked me to go into his room with my mom. I didn't think he'd notice that my room's window was open. After he cleared the downstairs, he did a sweep of the front and backyard to make sure nobody was hiding in the shadows. He's pretty paranoid about most things, but honestly, I appreciate his thoroughness. He came back up, told us that he didn't find anything, and we all went back to bed. I went back to my room and debated whether or not I should close my window. Stupidly, I decided not to. I figured my dad had swept the yard, so it was fine. Plus, my parents were awake and would probably freak out if they heard my window sliding closed. I decided to wait a bit and let them get a little less conscious before making my window related noise. About 15 minutes later, just as I was about to get up and close my window, the alarm goes off again. My dad rushes downstairs to turn it off just as I slide my window closed and push both locks back in its place. A few minutes pass and my dad comes knocking on my door. I open it and he tells me, Hey, I think it's just the wind. Don't worry about the alarm. It had been a pretty windy night, 20 to 30 mile per hour winds, and the door had a little give in its locking mechanism. It could be pulled half an inch before you felt the lock, so we both decided to write it off for the time being. The next morning, my dad decides to check the alarm system's app on his phone. To our horror, it showed the door being opened and closed 14 times before the alarm triggered the first time. Like I said before, it's a heavy door. We've had winter nights and never had the alarm triggered or seen the sensor opened and closed 14 times. My dad was telling our next door neighbor about what had happened the night before, trying to figure out if it would actually could have been the wind. Our neighbor told us that, in fact, he caught someone briefly entering his backyard on a security camera. He told us he'd probably freak out once he saw the camera and move onto our house. Just imagining whoever it was standing at the back door, right below my open window, triggering the alarm, hiding somewhere and probably watching my dad scoop out the backyard, and then doing it all while I laid oblivious in my bed, was enough for me to stop my midnight smoke sessions entirely. After this, we had a series of weird events happen at midnight. The next night, a woman rang our doorbell at the stroke of midnight, literally, and gave my dad his wallet, which he hadn't realized had been missing. A few nights later, the alarm triggered at the back door again, and then on Christmas Eve. I was home alone while my family was at the midnight church service, and the alarm triggered twice, back to back in a disturbingly similar time span as it had the first night. That time, I didn't bother asking which door had been triggered. I didn't want to know. I took away a fairly simple life lesson. Lock your doors, lock your windows, and set your house alarm, even if you think you're safe. When I was about 17, I worked as a hostess in this restaurant and bar. If you have never seen the movie Waiting, that's exactly what it was like working at this restaurant. My stepbrother was my manager, and one of the kitchen workers was my godfather's son. It's important to know that my godfather is my dad's best friend. We will get to that later. It was around Christmas time, and we were having our Christmas party at our second location, and it started at 9 p.m. Everything that day was normal for me, but I noticed my mom kept acting weird. When it was time to leave, my mom kept trying to talk me out of going. 
I wasn't going to miss the party. No way. So, before I leave, my mom asks me to call when I get there and call before I leave to head home. Which was weird because she wasn't too strict with me before. I get to the party and everything is fine. Until my godfather's son comes up to me and was telling me he was surprised I was there considering. I asked him what in the world that meant, and he was surprised no one filled me in on what's going on. I come to find out that that day at the restaurant, some man who was rough-looking and had a teardrop tattoo under his eye came in asking where I was. The staff then told him I didn't work that day and that they can't give out that kind of information on employees. He proceeded to tell my stepbrother, the manager, that he is my long-lost father, that I have no idea about him, and he wants to surprise me. At this point, my godfather's son comes out and hears the conversation and tells the man that he knows my father and that I look like him. The man leaves, and I've got to say that my dad is 100% my father. I even look like him. So after this, they get a little worried that the man had some other kind of bad intentions and call my mother. I don't even know who that man could have been, but I know for a while I was getting random calls without someone talking, just breathing into the phone, and I would often feel very uncomfortable out alone. To this day, I wonder who that was and what they were planning. It was the evening on Christmas Day, around 2012. I'm around 16 or 17, and my mom and I are driving back home after spending Christmas Day with our extended family in Greater London. Me and my mom live alone with our dog, Pika. We are just chatting away about Christmas. Then the conversation moved to Santa Claus, and then we started talking about other mythical holiday characters, such as the Easter Bunny and Tooth Fairy. We talked for a while about how, when I was young, my mom used to keep my baby teeth in a small jar with the blue fairy on top. And I always remembered this jar from my childhood but hadn't seen it for many years. I remembered the last time I had seen it. It was partly wrapped in black duct tape, obviously to stop it falling open. And if I had to estimate when this was, I would say several years before. Probably around the time we were moving house and were packing. Around 2007, five years prior. We spoke for a little while about baby teeth in this jar. My mom also stating that she hadn't seen it in a long time and hoped it wasn't lost during the process of our house move. I remember even saying that I thought it was a bit gross that my mom had kept all my teeth in the first place and that they were just sitting in the house somewhere. Anyhow, this conversation went on for a while and then we moved on to talking about something else. We arrived home shortly after, walked in the front door and greeted my dog as usual. My mom walks into the kitchen and I follow immediately behind her. And there, on the floor of the kitchen, is the small jar, opened into two pieces, and all these tiny baby teeth all over the floor. My first reaction was to think that my mom was trying to spook me, although she has literally never played a prank on me in my whole life. But then I saw her face and realized she definitely wasn't. She immediately freaks out and starts ringing everyone she knows to tell them what happened. My dog, Pika, was pretty old at that point, maybe 11-ish years, and was very docile when we'd leave the house. She literally would never go rummaging through belongings or anything like that. It wouldn't really be possible anyway, as most stuff is kept in drawers and cupboards that she couldn't access. Weird, right? I still didn't have any explanation for it. My mom has a fair few explainable and weird stories about things that have happened to her before I was born, and although I knew she was never lying to me, I will always 
be a little bit skeptical about the circumstances and thought maybe she'd missed something, which could logically explain her experiences. Then, when this happened, I thought, oh shit, maybe she's right, because I literally cannot explain what happened. This happened when I was 13. I'm a girl, by the way. And in the 8th grade and the middle school I went to was about a 15-minute walk, so not very far. For context, my older brother and I grew up in East L.A. in a house that had a metal gate and both the front and back doors had a black metal string door and then the wooden door. During the day, we would always leave the wooden door open and have the black metal door locked and closed. Except for this day. That day I came home from school and had about an hour before anyone else would be home. I was really thirsty, so I rushed inside, grabbed a drink, and sat down at the kitchen table, which was about 10 feet away from the front door. I heard the metal gate open and was surprised as no one should have been coming home that early. I got up to see who it was, and I saw an older man, probably in his 60s. He had short white hair and a long white beard. He was wearing an ACDC t-shirt, torn jeans, and sunglasses. I remember thinking he looked a lot like Santa Claus, but the dirty and creepy version. He knocked on the metal screen door and asked if my parents were home. I was a dumb kid and said they weren't. He got a smile on his face and said that he collected donations for needy children. I said, sorry, but I don't have any money. He said, sometimes children donated old toys. I said, I didn't have any old toys to donate. He insisted that I must have some toys I didn't want anymore. He was beginning to creep me out, and I noticed I hadn't locked the door when I came inside. I tried to keep my cool as I slowly but carefully locked the door. I kept him talking so he wouldn't notice. A minute or two later, he wouldn't leave, so I decided I would pretend to check for toys and then say I didn't have any, so he would hopefully leave me the hell alone. I told him I would go and check, and as I turned and took a few steps down the hallway, I clearly heard him yank at the door trying to open it. I didn't want him to know I had heard, so I kept walking down the hall and into my room. I didn't have a cell phone, and the only phone in the house was in the kitchen. I thought about what to do and decided to stick with my plan. After about two or three minutes, I walked out hoping he had left. Nope. Creepy Santa man was still there. I told him sorry, but I couldn't find anything. He sighed and said all right, he would check another time. He left and walked across the street. I watched from the kitchen window, peeking through the blinds, as he just stood there staring at my house for about 45 minutes. My brother and a few of his friends finally came walking down the street. As my brother came inside and his friends kept walking down the street, the man walked around the corner and disappeared. I told my brother what had happened, and he walked outside to look, but creepy Santa man was long gone. When my mom came home, we told her what had happened, and she called the police, but they said to call back if he showed up again. Thankfully, he never did. I work at a beauty store, and today an older man with a white beard came in. I greeted him and asked if there was anything I could help him with. He stuck his hand out and said, Hi, I'm Santa Claus. I go to shake his hand as I laugh uncomfortably. As I try to pull my hand away, he stops shaking my hand and just holds it and proceeds to tell me about how he's popular in the next town over as Santa Claus and how their local beauty store knows him very well. He held my hand for a solid two minutes as he told me about his stories of being St. Nick. 
He finally let me go after I tried pulling away several times, and then finally asked me where the colored hairspray was, so he could make his beard appear whiter. After helping him, I took him to the register to ring him up, and as I tell him his total, he hands me a card with a picture of Santa Claus on it that said, Happy Holidays. I take it and say thank you, and he then pulls out another card but keeps it face down. He then says, Now this one is my pride and joy. When I give this to you, I want you to keep it for yourself and not show anyone. Not your husband or your boyfriend. Nobody. I was so uncomfortable that all I wanted was for this man to leave the damn store. He made me promise I wouldn't show another soul, which made me even more uncomfortable. I nervously take the card in hopes he would leave sooner. I quickly turn the card over and glance at it, thankful that it was just a picture of a wax bottle and said pride and a dish cleaning bottle that said joy. The jokes seemed like innocent dad jokes until what he said next. He then proceeded to ask me how long I've been working there, what days I work, and what my hours were. I just answered by saying I'm not sure over and over again since I find these things to be very personal information. He then asks me how many other girls work at that store. I told him I don't know. As I told him his total for the third time, he finally hands me the money. As I give him his receipt and his items, he then asks me if I'm married. I tell him no, but I do have a boyfriend. He says to me, You should just stay single. That way you'd be able to please every man. I look at him with disgust and tell him, uh, Okay, sir, you have a nice day. And then he looks me in the eyes and says to me, you stay safe out there, and I'm serious. And then walks out the door. Dear Mr. Santa Claus, the only person I need to stay safe from is you. I hope you don't come back in my store again. When I was about eight or nine, I saw something weird on Christmas Eve. This was many, many years ago, but I still remember it like it was yesterday. I still believed in Santa Claus then, as a good amount of children do, and I had the usual anxiety and excitement for Santa to leave Christmas presents by the tree. After I went to bed, I had some trouble going to sleep with holiday nerves and such. I had finally drifted off, when I woke up to the sounds of soft footprints somewhere in my room. I automatically assumed it was Santa Claus, and I was scared to see him for fear he might leave or his magic will fail. I opened one eye just barely and saw this black figure standing over my bed staring at me. It was tall, probably about six feet tall, and it was completely dark. It looked almost blacker than black in a way, if that makes sense. I couldn't see any eyes, a mouth, or a nose on it, but I could clearly see the outline of a head, arms, body, and legs. It looked like a bigger person, so thinking it was Santa just made sense. It stayed in one spot for 10, maybe 15 seconds until it took a few steps closer. It leaned in a little more, still a few feet away from me, and then stood there for 10 or 15 more seconds. Even though I couldn't see his face, I knew it was looking right at me. It's just that weird feeling you get when you know you're being watched or looked at. I closed my eyes again and waited for a few minutes. When I looked back out, it was gone. I live in a pretty old house at the time, so the doors and floorboards were squeaky and loud. I heard the footsteps, but I never heard the door open. I never saw this figure again, though I've had some other spooky experiences in this house. I asked my mom if she had heard Santa when he came into my room last night, and she looked confused for a second. Then she played along and just assumed I was lying. 
I know this wasn't a person, and I know this wasn't a dream. I also know that spirits and entities are often attracted to lots of excitement and energy. So Christmas would be a perfect time for a ghost to pass through. I swear on my life, this was a real encounter and the only faithful encounter with the paranormal I have ever had. And so, I will now share that story with you all. So, many years ago, my mom had gotten this Grinch doll thing for a Christmas decoration. Nothing about it was scary on its own. It was just kind of there. The problem with this doll was that every single night I would have a nightmare. In these nightmares, there would be some strange story, just like a nightmare. The point I'm trying to make is that all of the nightmares I had, none of them were the same, other than the fact that the Grinch doll was always in them. The worst part of this for me was that he always knew I was dreaming, and he would talk to me while I was dreaming. Also, he was never really the antagonist in any of my dreams, but he was always there. In some cases, he would help me out of the dreams, and sometimes he would just sit there. But, get this, whenever Christmas was over and Mom would take down all the Christmas decorations in the tree, the dreams were gone. This happened for a very few Christmases. Two years ago, I told my mom I didn't really like having it up, and she took it down, easy as that. Last Christmas, I was visiting my sister for Christmas. At some point, I was playing with my nephew in his room when I noticed the doll on his floor. This is not strange at all because my mother had a box that she would will which things we didn't need anymore so she could give them away. Anyways, I remember having a dream again, and sure enough, he was there. Just the other day, my friend had asked me if I believed in ghosts. I said no. She was shocked and said, Have you ever had a paranormal experience? I told her this story. She said I should ask my nephew if I can have it, just to prove I'm right. How disgusting would it be if I asked for it back and he told me he got rid of it for the same reason? And that, dear listeners, is going to bring a close to these true Christmas scary stories. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Until next time, please take care of yourselves. I'd like to give a credit and a shout-out to the Reform members of the channel. Howler's Mom, Tina Mead, Seven, Buzz Crispin, Tammy Slayton, C.A.G., Denise S., Samantha Place, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Normie D.W., Christy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, and Patty's Knees. I hope you all have yourselves a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening. Peace, love, and light to you all.
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 